called TAD to remodel my place. Said I wanted it to be that kind of place. Knee deep in the Renault, sinking in our fights. Other shonky builders waking me up at night. And Adam plays the boss man. He listens to the customer. Don't you remember? He built this kitchen. He built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD. We built this kitchen. We built this kitchen with TAD. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from unceded Kulin Nation land. A reminder as well that today the Prime Minister announced the date of the referendum, and we encourage you here at Radio Architecture to start learning, start getting curious, start having conversations with an open heart, because October 14th is not far away. My conversation partner tonight is Nikita Bopti, a project architect at Sibling Architecture, a writer and curator. With experience across public arts and residential projects, Nikita enjoys the intimate details within architecture, finding joy in the one-on-one nature of things that we contribute to the built environment. Through her freelance writing, Nikita actively engages in various art and design publications, such as Architecture Media, Yellow Trace, Architectural Review, and EST Living, and is on the editorial team for Architect Victoria. She is actively involved in curating industry events via her work with the Australian Institute of Architects, Imagine Committee, and her former role as lead curator and secretary of New Architects Melbourne. Welcome to the program, Nikita. So glad to have you. Yeah, glad to be here. Glad to catch up too. It's been a little while since yeah. we've hung out. Yeah, a very long time actually. So I'm lucky to get you in for a whole hour tonight <laughs> to talk. The first question, as you're a listener of the show, so of I course. think you, I think you know by now, is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Yeah, I mean, I've listened to many of the people that have been on this show answer this question and I've like told over it like what is truly my earliest memory and I have a lot of early memories of architecture but I think the most bizarre one and actually my earliest, earliest one that I can think of would be the physical architecture of my grandmother and grandfather's home in India when I was probably, I don't know, maybe four or five years old. I have this very strong memory and I actually have a bit of a scar on the bottom of my chin. Um, I know what happened. um, And the memory is actually associated to, I think I was 
crawling really fast um, on the ground. And I, I know that I was, I, I just remember, I don't remember who was in the room, but I remember it was my dad and my grandfather and a bunch of other men, must have been a few of my uncles. And I was so young and I was crawling around on the floor pretending to be a dog. And there were white, white, shiny floors. And I remember that. I remember the architecture of the whole room because I remember crawling so fast that I went splat. And I hit my chin and I just remember looking at those white tiles with my red blood all over them. And it's this quite traumatic experience of architecture because even now when I look at really hyper-gloss white large format tiles, I just touch my chin and I shrug shrug a little bit because it's quite traumatic. (laughs) And you've not specified marble since. No, never, (laughs) never, never before, never again. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that home. Was it a traditional home? Yeah, I mean, I think it, so it was a home in Mumbai. Um, I was born in Mumbai and I I moved here when I was halfway through prep. So quite early. So I have very early memories of my childhood in Mumbai. And in Mumbai, everyone lives in buildings. It's not very common to live in freestanding homes or attached homes. It's just towers everywhere. And those buildings are in complexes. So I think that this, this particular home, I I could draw the floor plan of it for you. I remember it that well. (laughs) And that that deep embedded cultural memory there for you. Yeah, definitely. And I think that I guess a lot of architecture that is quite prominent for me is embedded with memory or a story, like some, something that's happened or something that's evoked a feeling or yeah, a story that I can tell along with it. And you love to write about that too. I've really noticed that cultural memory of place is quite pivotal for you, quite important. Yeah, I mean, I write a lot of um, different types of pieces. I write a lot of um, pieces on Australian architecture for Australian-based publications, but I also write um, for a series of publications that cover global architecture as well. And quite easily, some of my favourite pieces are um, pieces that are um, in India. So I've, I've written quite a few pieces and I think... It, for me, those pieces come a lot more naturally, of course, because I guess I have the cultural understanding. But I, I really quite enjoy sharing that in much in the same way if you and I were to catch up for a coffee and I just tell you about, I don't know, something in my life. Um, I find that it's quite easy for me to write a piece on architecture when I can sort of weave in something about a memory or or something that I know about a culture or a place that isn't necessarily about the architecture. And I find that just even reading pieces that other people have written I, I tend to enjoy the ones that have an embedded story in there further than just describing the building and what it's doing and what its key gestures are. That take you on that journey. Yeah. I do find you do that very well in your writing though. You add this, you focus on the value add of the architect and the value add of the architecture. Yeah, I think in, so. In contrast to just saying, oh, this is this room's next to that room and it looks like this and it looks pretty grand and it was very expensive. You're You're very good at focusing on what the architects did and how they made it even better. Yeah, I think that that's innately something that a lot of architects don't know how to do. And it's something I, don't, I, I didn't mean to do that consciously. I think that's just the way that I, I like to talk about buildings and, and think about things. But I think that, yeah, I think everyone's yabbering on about, oh, architects need to learn how to write about their projects. And I think that architects do know how to write about their projects. Um, I think that it's addressing who is on the reading end of that because a lot of the writing that architects do do is for awards entries or for websites and they're very descriptive and they're they're aimed at you know selling a project to um, 
a judge or or someone that's going to shortlist them or someone that knows something about architecture. Whereas I think the thing that's quite powerful is when you can sort of take someone, whether they're, you know, I always, uh, whenever I write a piece, I always think about my mum's going to read this. And even when I write something for work, I just think about, oh, how would my mum read this? So my mum's not an architect. She's an occupational therapist and is very much in a, in a medical field, not a design field. And so I think it's always about just thinking about who is on the other end reading that. And I think once you start to address various readers in one in one piece, I think that that's where the tone kind of starts to change. And that's where I think architects don't necessarily do that very well. I think it's very easy for architects to nerd out with other architects and, and people that know what they do. But And zoom too deep into Arky speak, which exactly. is banned on this program. I know, I'm being very careful with my words. <laughs> You're doing excellent. <laughs> but I do have a question about when, do, in your opinion, do you think there comes a point where having a technical register, which is all good and fine, mm. goes too far and starts to venture into that uh, space of exclusionary behaviour? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think, but I think, yeah, when, I guess whenever anyone puts pen to paper, architect or not, I think the thing that makes a successful piece of writing is, you know, is it saying what you want to say versus is it, is it going to make someone hear what you want them to hear? I think they're two very different things because people are very good at talking about things that they know or things that they've done. Whereas I don't think that, um, yeah, I think in our industry it's quite easy for a lot of architects to um, write something and say, oh, yeah, I'm happy with that. But then actually I don't think about how someone else is going to read that and quite often I read something and I'm like, oh, I, I, I get what they've done but – I wish they'd spoken about this or I wish they'd unraveled that a little bit more because it would be so much more juicy. And pull themselves deeper properly into it. <laughs> so I'm really curious, how did you decide that you wanted to do architectural writing? Yeah, I mean, it's it was sort of like this. Um, I mean, I, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. When I, was, when I was in high school, I did a lot of English and writing-based subjects that I loved. I loved poetry and all of that. And I remember when I got into architecture, just studying was so intensive. And, you know, when you're in architecture school, you kind of don't do anything other than architecture school. Yep. And, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I remember when I was doing my master's, I remember remembering that I, I really liked writing and remember that sense of joy. And I remember telling myself in, just internally, I never said it out loud, but I remember telling myself, oh, when you, when you register and when you're finished, when you're registered architect, then maybe you should try and push and do some writing in the industry and that can be your other thing that you do alongside your career. And I think it sort of got to that point. So I got registered in the midst of the depths of lockdown. All online. Deep, deep lockdown, all online, completely isolated. And I think, I mean, it was great, got it done. But um, I think it was... Yeah, I think it was just this weird time where I just didn't think about anything else really. Um, after I finished registering, I was like, I'm free, but I'm not free because we're in lockdown. Um, and I remember I was part of um, the AIA, the Australian Institute of Architects. They have a constructive mentoring program. So I remember I was both a mentor and a mentee on that platform. And I had this mentor who worked in large practice and she was Sydney-based. So we used to just meet over Zoom once a week or two and I remember when I got registered she was like okay what are you what are your professional goals now like 
you know, touching base, what's what's next? And I think at that point I was like, brain off, no more professional goals for a little while. I'm taking a little break, as you do. Um, but I think, yeah, after that I – I was like, okay, well, I don't actually know what to say to her because I don't have any professional goals lined up. So I just started just saying a few little things here and there. And then somewhere in that I slipped in that I I want to, oh, yeah, something about writing and like, oh, I want to be a writer one day, blah, 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 and just kept carrying on. And then I think, yeah, it was interesting because she just latched onto it and I couldn't get her to stop like asking me about it. She's like, why do you want to do writing? Or what kind of writing? I was like, oh, I don't know. It's just this thing since year 12 that I've always wanted to do when I eventually am in the right place and the right time to do do something like that. Um, and it was bizarre because I'd never said it out loud. And she really latched on to the point where she was like, encouraging me to like reach out to editors or reach out and like the thing the thing with architecture is that you never study writing no one teaches you how to write there's no coursework or there's nothing architecture adjacent even that you know can can allow you to dip your toe into that world and so I was I just thought it was ridiculous for me to say oh I want to be a writer and then for her to be able to give me something actionable and then to actually plunge into it but she sort of encouraged me to do a number of things and you know, one of them was that she put me in touch. She had a, a colleague that um, used to work in, in a previous large practice with her, Penny Craswell, who is my one of my beloved writing mentors even till today. Um, she's the reason that I got my foot in the door really. So yeah, my mentor put me in touch with her and I remember setting up a Zoom in the middle of lockdown and picking her brain about it. Um, and Penny's great. She's a writer. She was the editor of Artichoke at one point in design and um, just Australian Design Centre curator. And just she's just so amazing. And she's done a lot of amazing writing in the industry over the years. And I think I just picked her brain and she's got her own design blog called The Design Writer. And it was on that that she actually gave me the opportunity to like write a piece under her mentorship. So that was where I got my first piece. And then I ended up writing a few more for her and under her tutelage got a little bit, you know, groom, groom, she groomed me up a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, sort of got some confidence and some advice from her and my other mentor to reach out to other editors. So I I reached out to Parler and pitched a few pieces and that was fun and learned a lot along that process. And um, also reached out to Emma Adams, who's the editor of Architect Victoria, so AV. Uh, it's the Australian Institute of Architects um, official journal for the Victorian chapter. So I, yeah, once I had a few pieces under my belt, got in touch with her and she's now also one of my really amazing writing mentors. Um, and yeah, I've, it sort of led to positions where I, yeah, I started off writing two pieces per edition for them and I've done that for quite a few years now and it's led me to position on the editorial team now which is amazing so I never thought that you know saying out loud to this random mentor that I had that had nothing to do with writing saying oh I want to be a writer one day out loud just would lead me to heart. all of this yeah huge congratulations yeah well, thank you just speaking your heart and then letting that whisper that little yeah. ember become reality yeah totally and I totally encourage more people to do that I think that's the lovely thing about having mentors in architecture as well as that um you know like my mentor was um she wasn't just an architect she's quite actively involved in industry and and you know, she, I think it's 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 nice to sort of pair yourself up with someone that um, you want to go with. I remember I remember actually selecting her because 
she was quite involved in a few different organisations. Um, and I remember that one of my professional goals for that year was to be more involved with industry outside of just my job. Um, and I just wanted to pick her brain on how I can become, how, how, to, how to do that and how she went about it. And yeah, it ended up <laughs> being much more fruitful than I thought Amazing. it could be. I think it's really important also to talk about the diversity of ways that people can practice architecture or be involved in architecture mm. and have an active and successful career either in parallel to their office job, their firm work, uh, such as yourself or those that have gone strictly into architecture, editorial work, architectural writing, yeah. journalism, architectural communications. It's a whole genre of people drilling architects to speak better, talk better, yeah. write better, present better. Yeah. And I think that the interesting thing is that um, particularly in that like architecture communications and that like marketing branding realm, like there's so many amazing businesses out there that a lot of architects, particularly small and medium practice architects are leaning into that don't do all that stuff in house and that, you know, do rely on advice from these amazing super gun people that are heading these kind of um, companies. Um and a lot I think, of super gun women in that space too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that, yeah, it's um, – yeah, I think I think that there's just something quite um, – I think every time I've spoken to someone who works in that realm, in that marketing and um, you know, agency-type realm, they are always telling me that they wish that they had more architects that were writers and that they're always looking for architects that are writers. Even editors of certain publications have said it to me before. They're like, it's just having someone write, having a writer write about architecture versus having an architect write about architecture. They're two completely separate things and it's so sought after. And so I think that was quite encouraging for me um, when I, I was quite young when I heard that in my writing career. And I, I've sort of just noticed as well, like, just, you know, like flipping through the pages of, say, houses and you can just, you can see the kind of pieces that you can tell the difference, um, whether a piece was written by an architect versus one that wasn't, um, sort of, yeah, has a different relationship to what they're talking, like the, the architecture that they're talking about. Oh, totally. It's, mm. for me, it's really the way they describe the spatial qualities. Yeah. And I think that there's like this weird innate connection <laughs> that, you know, I think there's a, there's um, some publications require you to actually go to site and, and meet with the architects or the clients in the project itself. And so I think it's going back to that, what we were talking about earlier, just about that whole storytelling as well. Like, I think if, if, if people, um, architects or not, writers can weave in um a story of what happened i uh, think like an example of that would be i read this piece um recently that was very descriptive about the writer who went into this home and was served a cup of tea and the you know the table that he sat on and, and the view that he was taking in while the clients were getting ready for the interview and it was just you know, that's the stuff that happens in a house, you know, that that's the real, <laughs> the way that the architecture is inhabited. And for me, that was more interesting than him describing what kind of flooring went into the project. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So I'm really curious, your experience as a writer, how does it vary across these digital pro projects or the online publications where perhaps also the projects overseas, as you've been saying, versus a local project that you need to go down to site and have those conversations? Yeah, I think that there's quite a few um, in-print publications, um, particularly part of architecture media, that require you to go out and, and meet with designers and architects and, um, and see the project them yourself. Um, and I think that it, typically those those projects have a much um, 
uh, higher turnaround, uh, faster, t- uh, slower turnaround, sorry. And then the ones that are online um, typically have a, a faster turnaround. So it's actually, as a freelancer, it's always interesting for me because I'm, I've got, you know, certain, like a, a number of pieces on the go at any given time. And there's some that are due in five or six days with of getting commissioned them and then there's some that are due in three or four weeks it's almost a month and it's um it's always just interesting trying to balance that um in print versus online I think online's great because you get to sort of smash pieces out and for me I've found those were the ones that I've really been quite experimental with my writing with um just because they're they're quick they're punchy you know you've just and and they're quite juicy and I think um being online they're not in print in print um magazines typically are are quite curated as well the editor has this vision for that specific edition of the magazine and they very carefully select the project they very carefully pair their writers with those projects and so I think that and there's a certain tone that the magazine carries too whereas a lot of the online publications you yeah there's a lot more um variety in terms of um the the voices behind behind the publication Um, yeah that's real. That's really curious. I I wonder with those online ones, whether you get more material for you to write off than what we get to see published. So say there's mm. like five pictures that go along with the article. Is that mm. all you also get, or you get a whole trove and a video tour or something? Or oh look, it depends. Every practice has um, different formats for their media packs, and so some of them will send you videos and an interview with the architect with beautifully curated like music and everything and then some of them will just be like a google dropbox with how many ever photos and then like and and particularly with um a lot of the international pieces some of them will just be in another language and you'll have to like google translate that into english and then you're just sort of left weaving together this thing and it's 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 yeah and quite often and you you do have contact with the architects as well so you can go and ask them further questions but for a piece that has like a five or six day turnaround it's quite yeah there's no time for a zoom call you've got to make a call sometimes and um yeah I think sometimes and it varies as well like you the text that you're given as a writer as well that's sort of all you get to go off if it's a project that's overseas and you don't you don't get to go and meet with the architect or have a zoom with them or see the house it's quite often you know I've, I've had I've had to write a five or six hundred piece article before on 150 words text and you know that that's where it becomes really important for the storytelling to really drive it and I I remember thinking at the side of the article I was like oh my god what am I like this is really tricky and all I have is the photos and 150 words that are barely in English (laughs) Um, but it actually ended up being one of my favorite pieces because I had to really delve into the media pack and I had to really um yeah try to place myself in the architecture through whatever photos I had and I had to draw references to what I knew culturally about that place or, or I was it. just gonna ask what is your favorite piece can you tell us oh, a bit about that one yeah I feel like it changes all the time I, I don't think I have a favorite piece as such but I think yeah the, there's a few and I think that it quite often it's um there's a few ones that I've written on um, projects in India. There was one that I wrote earlier this year. My partner and I um, went road tripping, road tripping through Punjab um, ju- during like during January and February, and 
we went to see a lot, like we, we went to this town that was designed by Le Corbusier Chandigarh and we went to the Capitol complex and we did a whole tour of it. And it's this World Heritage listed site um, that's the, the political capital of India and it's just, it's phenomenal and it's just full of like some of Corb's most amazing buildings and spatial arrangements and I remember we were both just and my partner's not an architect and he was like we were both just in awe and we just spent the whole day there and I got assigned this piece um in Ahmedabad in India and it was it was by a contemporary Indian architect it was completed just a few years ago and all I had was the media pack to really go off it but I just remember as soon as I saw I saw that project I just got transported back to that capital complex and and the buildings there and the, that feeling of looking up and, and what we experienced when we were there. And so naturally that whole piece just became quite like it referenced Corb's work quite a bit. And the, the lovely thing about that, which was so unexpected, was you know, I shared my piece on Instagram and tagged the architect and all of that. And the architect actually sent me a DM and was like, I'm so amazed. I'm so happy that you saw that you saw that in this project because I studied Corb's work when I was in uni and and he he was really like his work is just naturally driven by a lot of you know like influenced heavily by Corb's work and so he was kind of stoked that yeah that was that was what came out of it so you were able to validate the architect's vision in that way yeah and there was there was no reference to it in the text or anything it was just purely this like connection of feeling that I had when we were on that trip and then this connection of feeling I had when I looked at those photos. So it's kind of amazing. And I just wonder, you know, if if more architects were writers, you know, what kind of pieces could they write and what kind of connections would they make? What do you think about the idea that the architecture should speak for itself? I know um, this year's designer of the M Pavilion, Tado Ando, is a, mm. rarely speaks, ra- rarely writes about his work, <laughs> almost never gives interviews and is a big proponent of um, my work speaks for itself. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, architecture can definitely speak for itself, but I guess the thing with um, buildings like M Pavilion is is their temporary structures, right? Like there's, and this is the thing, like there's, it's not just buildings. When we talk about architecture, it's not just buildings that we build, it's concepts and ideas and it's things that may not necessarily be permanent and I feel just writing is such an important medium to record all of that Um, through my involvement with Imagine and my former involvement with NAM I think I've been pushing to sort of get a lot more of that I guess the, the it's it's a heavily it's heavily an events-based organization so the output of Imagine is events and so I've been, yeah, just talking to the co-chairs actually recently about, um, you know, how we go about actually recording the contents that's produced from these events. You know, where does that go? Because does all that knowledge and all that really critical dialogue that comes out of these events, does that just sit with the people that attended the event or, you know, and re- like it just relies on word of mouth or people having conversations to carry that on? Or how can we use potentially writing to really catalogue a lot of this critical dialogue and and make it permanent. I think that it was really validated with um, ArchiTeam. Um, ArchiTeam threw their conference, conferences every few years and um, the last two that uh, conferences that they've had, I've been their journalist for it. And so I remember uh, a few years ago they had their conference and, um, one again, one of these random mentors that I reached out to during COVID when I first decided I wanted to be a writer, Sonia Sarangi. Um, 
I had reached out to her and she happened to be on Architect. And I just reached out to her because I'd seen that she'd written a few articles here and there and she was an architect. So I wanted to pick her brain about it. And it ended up being, yeah, just a, just a lovely mentally relationship. But then, yeah, quite a few months down the track, I remember her approaching me and saying, hey, you know, I've seen that you've been writing a few pieces here and there. Do you mind, would you be interested in, in um, doing a review of our conference? And do you mind pitching it to a few publications that you've written for? I said, yeah, sure. Um, and so, yeah, I sort of, that's how I got my first one with them. And then I remember the one that they threw earlier this year, um, they got me to do the same thing. And I remember her actually coming up to me and saying that, or she introduced me to someone and she's like, oh, this is Nikita. She's an architect. She's also a writer. And she's the only reason that our previous conference exists on the internet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I just remember thinking like, that's so bizarre that, you know, like this whole team of people, this whole organization took time and energy to put together this event and then, you know, it, it lives on through a piece of writing because they didn't record it or, or you know, that's, that's the means through which it's recorded. And so I think actually writing can be so much more important than we think it can be. Um, and I really enjoy actually writing about events. Um, I've, I've written about, yeah, a few architectural-based events, but even just like, um, you know, art galleries and openings and ex exhibits that are, you know, not so permanent and that, Really, I think reviews are, are, are so important in just recording and capturing it. You know, everyone talks about Instagram and the grid and having this permanent memory of something. And I feel like writing, writing's stories. my Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the, like. that ephemera. You seem to be quite drawn to that, really, aren't you? In your work and even your aesthetic style, like uh, <laughs> on your Instagram, you're, I think you're quite interested in making the impermanent more permanent. Yeah, I mean. I think there's a lot of it's just time, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. It's there's so many ways we can record something. Like, look at you, you're recording us having a combo, and people are going to listen to it. So that's true. <laughs> it does live on on the internet. Yeah, like, it's like we were drilled while at university. Great architecture is time, place, and culture. <laughs> and, and sometimes those things need to be captured before they disappear. Yeah. What do you think about the phrase "publish or perish"? Oh, I think oh, nah do what you want is what I think <laughs> one or the other doesn't really it, just, it depends on context right like yeah, yeah. and it, you don't necessarily have to publish it publish something through writing or capture something's existence through writing I think there's a lot of creative ways that people are doing that um writing's just one of them yeah one of those numerous methodologies what would you like to see more happening across the architectural media landscape yeah which is diverse and diversifying. It We're is. back into live radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, podcasts are going nuts, hey. Um, but, yeah, I mean, architecture media is so great. It's so broad and it captures so much. But I think, yeah, if there was one thing I could see more of or some sort of change, it would be the mentors mentorship aspect. I think being – because I've uh, – yeah, I guess – having just randomly decided I wanted to write or well, not randomly, but one day having decided I wanted to write, I think I remember the feeling of um, being quite lost in not knowing where to start and how to engage with architecture media as a writer. I engaged with it as a reader and as an architect, but I didn't quite know how to be a writer. And like I was saying before, it's you know, not something that we're taught at uni. There's no, there's no coursework. There's no set way to get into it and yeah you know, now that I am a writer 
I think I've had people approach me and they're like, oh, you know, I've actually always thought about writing, but I don't know where to start. Can you tell me how you did it? And it's like, oh my God, like I, I actually don't know how I did it. I just, you, know, you just make it up and that's it. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of architects that write and whenever I meet up with a colleague that I know has had a piece published somewhere, I'll always ask them, how had you get, had, had that happen? Or, you know, was that self-driven or did you get approached? Because a lot of architects that write have been approached because, they work in a certain in a certain um, area and have an area of expertise in a certain area, and they they get invited to write about that one thing. But I think I think I'm talking more about you know freelance writers and and people that want to actually have a career in architectural writing alongside being a practicing architect or you know a bit of both. Um, it's quite yeah, it's quite daunting knowing where to start because there isn't a start. You just have to jump in and I think what worked for me may not necessarily work for someone else but I just always encourage everyone to read reach out to writers or people architects that are writers that they they follow and that they like their style and just pick their brain I always found that was a nice starting point for me um but yeah I think just informal mentorship all the way (laughs) really that's a really important point be Mm. brave if you love something be brave throw your hat in the ring give it a go yeah, well, what's the worst that can happen? Someone doesn't commission you a piece. Well, yeah, exactly right. They, they just wouldn't publish it and if it wasn't good, no one would know about it. Yeah. But we're lucky to read your words because they're, they're good in many. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've also, you know, formed a really lovely group of um, writer friends in the architecture community um, and it's always quite nice to see how they all sort of seem to go about their practice. I'm quite like I don't journal like – I'm a writer that doesn't journal. I don't write down my feelings and, you know, have, you know, like I don't um, have my own blog or anything. Like there's a lot of like one of my, one of my really nice, um, one of my, well, yeah, one of my most um, favourite writer friends is Kimberly, who's um, the lady behind uh, Archimist in the Making. She's amazing. She's got her own podcast series and she has her Archimist blog um, where she just sort of started by, yeah, just, just, um, yeah, writing things about things that she was interested in within architecture and the design world. And um, she's always advising me to, oh, Nikita, you should write this. Oh, Nikita, you should try this writing, you know, like she does, like she's got all these like activities that you can do um, to just like improve your writing or, or test your writing or get words out. And I think it's just, yeah, everyone's so different. And then there's, you know, there's there's other friends that I have that um, – are just purely like just write pieces when they're invited to write pieces and they're just fortunate enough to keep getting invited to write pieces and they don't really have to push for work. I think, yeah, that's the other thing about being a freelance writer is I feel like I'm constantly having to work to get more work, (laughs) get more work because, yeah, going back to what you were talking about earlier about in-print versus online, with in-print you get commissioned um, per edition but – those take about three to four months to real like you you'll only get a commission once every three or four months. And so that's only, you know, three or four a year if you're lucky. And so, you know, you kind of have to fill in the gaps if you want to have ongoing freelance work. You've got to sort of grind to get um that's where a lot of those online um faster turnaround commissions really fill the gap. And yeah. All these things, they're all extra mm. energy, aren't they? But we love it. We we love architecture. That's why we, we do. do it. 
Yeah. And I, I, I kind of just, I just love learning. I love learning about different kinds of projects and, you know, it's, it's funny you asked me before, like, what are, what are some of my favorite pieces? My second part, my second part to that um, question was going to be that there's actually pieces that I get commissioned where I actually don't really like the project uh-huh. and I can't, I, and, you know, and the, it's really tricky and I've actually never knocked back a commission. I had to actually, no, that's not true. I knocked back one and that's because I was commissioned the same project by two different publications. So it was a conflict of interest, but yeah, I've never knocked back a commission because I always felt that I had to learn how to write about something that I didn't like. Mm. And interestingly, it's some of them have been my favourite pieces because it really forces you to use language and it really forces you to think about the architecture in more depth and try to find not things to like about it but just try to find ways to talk about what the key gestures are and what they reference and then I have to learn about those things that I may not necessarily know about. So I think that writing has been this really incredible tool for me to actually stay connected with industry in a way that I otherwise wouldn't have. I know that a lot of people um, do that via teaching. They, they feel like they're connecting to industry and constantly learning through their students. And I think that's amazing too. And I think that it's important for us practicing architects to always have some sort of way to keep on learning outside of just our practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. The discipline <laughs> you would have developed and that it would have taken you to push through those projects in a way that you can do the writing justice and as a professional still come to the table, still come to the party and be like, man, I love this, but I'm doing my job and I'm doing it really well as well. Yeah, well, I always hope so. <laughs> what what has been some of the real tr- tr- troubles in that? Like what has been some of the real hard complexities in trying to write about a project that you actually don't like? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, um, you know, trying to, yeah, trying to see it in an interesting way. Like sometimes, you know, I think that there was a piece once where and I guess every practice I've ever worked for has been quite colourful and yummy in its architecture. And so, you know, a white box architecture project isn't necessarily something that, you know, makes my heart beat faster. That's definitely antithetical to your portfolio to now, <laughs> yeah. now that I think about it for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I mean, there's, there's projects like that that are great and that do get me excited. But at the same time, there was one in particular that I just was really struggling to find something about it. And really it was about, um, it was in a country and it was located in a, in a place where there was a housing crisis. And actually it was, the project was a blank canvas. Um, and, it was sort of like a a blank canvas for residents that would otherwise not have had a home um, and providing an opportunity. And really I I had to look into the political state of that city and and learn about that. And for me that ended up actually being quite a fruitful project, Um, not necessarily in the the piece that was the outcome of it, but just for me as a writer because I got to learn about it and I got to, you know, have, I had to use language that I probably wouldn't have otherwise used in a piece just writing about architecture. I, so really, I really like that idea. And I, I like that idea also if we zoom out and consider it from a perspective of bigger public life, mm. the idea that you may not instantly love it, but if you approach it with generosity, with curiosity, yeah, and you dig into it just a little bit and hold some open space for it, yeah. you might find those gems. Exactly, yeah. That stretches to many things, doesn't <laughs> yes. it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, not just writing. Any any other of those moments for you that you've, that you've found that have sort of taken you out of your preferred 
mm, I don't com- know. comfort zone or, or push you beyond? I don't know. They're, they're, I feel like um, most pieces surprise me, actually. There's, there's always something unexpected in there. It just always reveals itself as I'm writing it. <laughs> I'd say the same for unscripted live radio. Yeah. <laughs> sort of do you like where this is going? <laughs> <laughs> no, of course I do. <laughs> because it's a, it's a conversation. Um, yeah. And that's largely the, the point of this show, to have those conversations that sit as links and as bridges to people. Yeah. But I think your writing does that also very well. Because you tell your stories, you think about, oh, how, how's my mother going to understand this? Exactly. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, you know, I think particularly when you write for publications that, um, you know, there's publications that within, say, AV, Architect Victoria, is a publication that sits under the Australian Institute of Architects. Majority of its readers are architects. So there's a certain language that I can use when I write pieces for that. And I know that – and my mum does read it because my mum reads all my writing. She, I love that. <laughs> of course, mum. But, you know, I think that there's also being quite conscious of, you know, there's there's magazines or publications that are architect-facing versus ones that aren't. And, you know, it's actually quite fun – taking my architect hat off and and putting just general public hat on and talking about something um, for those kind of publications. And yeah, I think it's, I try to just put myself in the frame of mind where I'm having coffee with a friend because a lot of my friends are not architects as well. And some of my, my closest friends are not architects. And I think I, yeah, I, I don't really talk architecture with them that much, but when I do I use a certain language and I think that the pieces that I write for these publications that are much more public-facing than architect-facing seem to carry that same language. Public-facing than architect-facing. We really do um, sometimes create a little cocoon universe. We do, yeah. And I don't think we know that we do either. And then I remember being a high school student Mm. who was interested in, in completely obsessed with becoming an architect, desperate to go to RMIT. And I was trying to read all these publications, trying to engage in content, um, trying to listen to all sorts of content that I could, could come across mm. as I was building my knowledge and understanding. And when you've not had the training of university and you're trying to weed through it on your own, it can be really inaccessible sometimes Yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that also just a lot of what um, universities put in front of you as well, like a lot of the the readings that you get at uni as well, you know, there's very, you know, varied language as well that's behind them. All all sorts. Certainly in in the academy that I think stretches us and challenges us beyond belief in in terms of the information that we engage with. And then you you say we have no formal training in writing, but funny (laughs) enough, most courses will then have you writing essays that you get graded on and can even get essay prizes and awards for. I mean, the whole push for it. Yeah. And I remember being at university and I remember there was a tutor that said to us, um, and, you know, particularly there was a, a certain amount of students were overseas students and a certain amount of students were local. And I remember them saying to the overseas student, they said that your work has to be so much stronger because you don't have the language to explain it as well. And I found that, yeah, I mean, and I found that, yeah, like really full on because it's, you know, there's so many architects, local people that I know that can speak English that are so terrible at communicating and, you know, I don't think it's, yeah, like it's just that funny thing at uni where you just are told 
you know, that your work has to speak for itself and, you know, it, it's, it's depends on the person whether it has to or not, depending on how good they are at communicating. That's not fair. Yeah. And with a hint of a bit of profiling mm. and uh, conscious and unconscious <laughs> bias in there too. But it doesn't help the profession keeping those ideas internal and, as you say, let them disappear into the ether if there's no mm. method of, of documenting. Yeah. But also I, I wonder how do we get new people in? How are you going to encourage high school students to follow through with the profession? How are you going to encourage mature-age students who have had a wealth of experience? Maybe mm. they were landscape architects or project managers or builders, like my guest last week, Yeah. who then move into architecture and bring amazing talent with them. Yeah into our industry, which is all necessary Yeah, if you keep it so closed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that, yeah, it's – it's um, and I think there's people even in our industry that are sort of like scratching to sort of do a bit of writing or break out of just, you know, that pure architecture industry bubble. Like I know I was one of those people and I I think, yeah – I remember that there's there's various ways, other things that we can do outside of just the practice of architecture. A lot of my colleagues teach um, and I remember considering that at one point and I just wanted something because I think at the time everyone around me, everyone I worked with and all my friends were teaching and I just felt like I wanted something that was mine and separate and different and that's where I found my writing. Um, but, yeah, it's just I think everyone just has to have – the means to be able to do that. And yeah. yeah. Free time's a privilege, isn't it? In some way. Oh, yeah. Well, no one has time. You've got to make time. Hey, that's true. <laughs> no such thing as free time. <laughs> yeah. Just reorganized uh, yeah. priorities. Yeah. Which, um, you know, many, many people have caring responsibilities or, yeah. or many, many other commitments that, that shackle them otherwise. Yeah. That, that prevent them from experimenting and, and branching outwards. Yeah. But it's important to know that there are options for yeah. parallel or alternative careers in the profession where your training is yeah. valid and necessary. Yeah. And I think it helps to – I remember that my partner was always telling me, oh, you need a hobby, you need a hobby. And I've never had a hobby. Um, and then when I started writing, I said, look, I finally have a hobby. <laughs> and he was like, oh, it's not a hobby. It's still it's, architecture. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I was, I was saying to someone the other day as well that, you know, like what you were saying before about, you know, people having caregiving responsibilities or responsibilities um, in their personal lives. And I think, yeah, we've gone through a certain period in our personal lives where I've sort of, I think I've just used writing as a coping mechanism as well um, for, for some things. And, you know, it's been quite lovely to have it there um, and be your, its own thing. Um, just outside of work as you leave work and then you go home and you decide to do some writing. That's catharsis. Yeah. Do you have any um, spatial prerequisites to be able to write well? Like do you have a spot you like to sit in or certain lighting you need? Uh, yeah. I mean I can't read if anyone's talking near me. That's It's really weird but I can't read if anyone's talking. But for writing I feel like I can just zone out anything and, and just write. But it depends on the piece as well. Like if quite often I've actually found that there's um, pieces that I've been quite excited to write. I'm like, oh, cool, yeah, I'll just smash this one out because I know the architect, I love their work. Like I've, you know, I'm, I'm friends with people that have worked there and oh, like, oh, my friends actually worked on this project or something like that. And, you know, I'll be so excited to write a piece and they're the pieces that take the longest and they're so hard to write. And I need like the perfect writing conditions because I get so distracted and 
just it's I think because you want to do it justice as well like I think Mm, you put pressure on yourself yeah and they're like pieces that I might not like like ultimately when I read them back I'm like oh my writing's better than that you know like oh just you know it didn't turn out as yummy as I thought it would be (laughs) and then yeah the the projects that like I was saying before the projects I probably like the least end up being so juicy the ones where you had to hold more space for possibilities yeah so I think that there's anything I've learned through my writing recently it's that don't jump into predetermined outcomes <laughs> yeah, probably yeah don't oh, get too excited like pre-plan a, a sort of feeling or an aesthetic around yeah. it too much well it's like architecture right like if you have a certain idea and you're like yeah it's gonna work it's gonna be amazing and then you actually document it and you're like oh it's kind of boring oops <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's the, i think it's the hubris right though the, the hubris becomes the, the folly <laughs> in, in that moment where you think it's going to be incredible yeah without getting in the mud with the discomfort of the process. Yeah. Because yeah. if it comes easy, it's usually not the best solution. Exactly. Exactly. It's usually not quite there. <laughs> so what's your advice to students who might want to be writers and also to people who are maybe not vibing practice anymore and wondering whether this is a legitimate mm. career option for them? Yeah. I mean, I think just – don't be shy to reach out um, and just I think like the perfect first step is actually just meeting with writers and meeting with editors or, or people that you know in the industry um, that are doing things that you want to do. Um, I know that that's definitely where I got, yeah, like that's where most of my momentum came from without me even knowing it. Um, you know, I reached out to Penny um, just wanting to know like wanting her to give me advice on where to start and instead she gave me a piece, you know, an article to write and it was so unexpected, you know, like I think you never know what you're asking for until you ask it. Yeah. You also never know what what those magical doors are going to open for you. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it was – I think you also don't know who people are connected to as well. Like I've had a lot of people connect me on or pass me on to someone else and – um yeah, like it's just just express your interest because you never know who's going to have an opportunity around the corner for you. It's an unbelievably small village. Mm, yeah, exactly. And and I think writing is also something that uh, a lot of architects have done at some point or know someone that has done it at some point. And if they haven't, you know, carried it through and, you know, made a freelancing career out of it or something, Um you know, they at least might have some sort of connection. So, yeah, just voice it. I didn't voice it. I just thought I slipped it in in a conversation with a mentor and all of a sudden I was a writer. <laughs> so just voice it even though, you, yeah, it might be scary to say it out loud. Be louder and braver yeah. listeners. Yeah. I wonder how your writing helps your practice work. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before about how I'm like constantly learning about different kind of projects, different concepts, what other architects have been doing, uh, particularly, you know, projects overseas that I may not have come across or engaged with that, you know, aren't in the forefront of architectural media, but, you know, when I get commissioned a piece. And, you know, I also, through my writing, naturally I, I read a lot of my colleagues' work. So I read writers that I, I like their work and I want to learn off them. And through doing that, I'm not just dissecting their writing, I'm learning about whatever it is they've written about. So, yeah. And, and you found that it's been able to already directly enter some of the detail solutions you've found, some of your design input in, in a work. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's just open up doors. So I like, I know more work that's out there. I know practices that I otherwise wouldn't have known about. And I start to look up their other projects. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden just got like all these amazing precedents <laughs> that I otherwise wouldn't have had if I didn't write that piece. I want to ask about where you think the future of architecture is headed and what you think the, the, either the future of innovation is or the, the future of production is and what's it going to look like. Being mindful that architectural writing, correct me if I'm wrong, is retrospective. So the, the project is built, they clean it up, it sits there for a few months, they photograph it. There's quite a lapse of time between design, mm. documentation, construction, finishing, photographing, media briefing, publishing, and then it comes and sits on my coffee table. Yeah. And that's years yeah. in the process. Yeah. So with all that in mind, <laughs> when, what's the future like for you? What's the future like for industry that you think of? Yeah, Yeah, big question. Um, I mean, I think the thing about those projects that, you know, that they go through a certain lifespan and they're technically they're finished, Um, air quotes finished because I'm on the radio. You can't see me do that. It's never finished. (laughs) It's never never finished. finished. But also the way that uh, like I think I think and I think that architecture media is getting better at this. I think they and photographers are getting better at this, at showing homes not as polished as we would have seen them maybe five or ten years ago. Um, you know, I think that it's it's always nice, you know, seeing a project not completely staged and feeling a bit more lived in and having more... Owner like, possessions in there. Yeah, but also just like, you know, the seasonality is more evident or, you know, there's leaves around and it's not as like, you know, like all the photos that end up in those glossy magazines. I feel like there's some projects that have really successfully been documented through photos and through the written word um, in a way that's much more lived in and real. Um, And I think that that's, as a writer, I think that that's where it's important to um, go visit the project. It's important to engage with the architect. It's important to engage with the client and get that story because that story is the real thing. It's, It's not the thing that's photographed and, you know, printed in the glossy magazine. The story is the thing that's like the the actual version of what got built totally Mm. i feel like even people who are in the profession until you're on site on the photo shoot day there Mm. with the photographers or the stylists if you've got them seeing how the smoke and mirrors happen you don't believe it yeah you think oh yeah that's just going to get built like that as we see in the magazine straight out wow yeah my first experience at a photo shoot i was like this is all witchcraft yeah (laughs) photo shoots are hectic yeah and yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, it would be, it would be nice to sort of see more, more projects, you know, be less curated through their photographs. Um, yeah, I know that's not the architect's dream, but. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm seeing more, I'm seeing more and mm. I, the architect, the project escapes me, but I remember actually being quite taken aback and thinking, oh, this is lovely, where I think it was actually an architect's own home or something. Mm. So they, they could be brave with the photos, but they left it as is, lived in, yeah. orderly cluttered, the human reality of life in that house and that kitchen was photographed in its real state. Yeah. And it's like, wow. And that was published. Yeah. Like those were the official images of that project. Some yeah. firms are really moving in that direction. Yeah, they? I'm just waiting to see a kitchen with like an actual like Sistema Blue Tupperware container on the kitchen bench top. Like that's the reality, really. <laughs> It really is. Yeah. So the day that happens, I'll be happy. 
maybe with a delicate blue flower over the top. Oh, who knows? Yeah. Handpick foliage. <laughs> well, I want to ask, what gives you hope? Oh, my gosh. I guess, yeah, with ending with the big questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, I think I would have liked when I was um, – when I first decided I wanted to be a writer, I would have liked to have a bit more of a framework or have a bit more of guidance around actually knowing that it's a thing that I can do. Um, I think if there's something I'd like to see happen, it would just be a bit more um, mentorship built into this whole like architectural writing realm. I know that it exists. It exists in quite informally though. And, you know, if you ask the right people, you'll get the right mentorship out of them. But Again, it's just it seems slightly unattainable for someone if they want to have a career in architectural writing. It's something that's quite elusive or yeah, the start point isn't really very clear. So, yeah, I think it would be good to sort of push for that and I'm interested to sort of explore that world a little bit more. I know I've been talking to a few people here and there, um, a few people at the Institute about changing that and a few of my writing mentors and just, yeah, trying to find a way trying to find a way to make um, mentorship in architectural writing more accessible. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. How can people get in touch with you or read more of your work or follow along? Yeah. I mean, I this is the weirdest thing as well. Like when I first started writing, I um, I just started randomly sharing on my Instagram. So I'm like, oh, hey, I wrote a piece. Oh, here's another piece. Oh, here's a piece. Here's a link to the piece. And I was like, oh, no one's going to care, whatever. But I was just doing it because that's what you do. Um, but, yeah, I just started sharing it and I had no idea that this many people were reading it. And, like, I, I catch up with friends where I bump into people that I haven't seen for years and they're like, oh, that piece you wrote about this. And they'll start talking to me about it. I'm like, oh, you actually read it. So I think it was, it's was. it been really lovely just seeing that people are actually reading what I'm writing. So. You do a really great job on your Instagram too, oh. though, of like <laughs> photographing the publication on your coffee table in situ. Oh. You're selling us the experience of reading your words. Oh, that's just actually me reading my words because <laughs> I'm so excited when the magazine arrives. I put down my coffee and take a photo straight away because it's been so long. Like, because often, yeah, I'll write a piece. Three months later, I'll actually get a magazine with the words in it. So I kind of forget that I've written it and it's like, ooh. Here it is. The long-awaited baby. Exactly. Congratulations on all your work and wishing you every success with all future writing and publication. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. I'm Councillor Chris Hill, Deputy Mayor of the City of Kingston, and you're listening to Radio Karen.